Thank you for listening to this Aspen podcast highlighting research accepted at the Aspen 20 conference. This podcast is brought to you by a grant from Fresenius Cabby. The research discussed in this podcast was accepted as an abstract to the Aspen 20 conference. As Aspen 20 became a virtual conference, we are now pleased to have this opportunity to learn about research that was to be presented at the conference. My name is Dr. Michael Christensen. I'm a professor in the Department of Clinical Pharmacy and Translational Science at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. And I'm director of the Prenner Nutrition Service at Lavonner Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. I will be interviewing Dr. Lorenzo Inez Bustillos, who is a surgical resident on behalf of his colleagues from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center at Boston Children's Hospital about their abstract entitled Vitamin E Levels in Children Treated with an Intravenous Fish Oil Lipid Emulsion. I want to note that this is an abstract of distinction. Adequate concentrations of antioxidant vitamins is vital for children receiving parental nutrition because they often have comorbid conditions that are associated with oxidative stress, such as inflammation, sepsis, and respiratory failure. The infusion of parenteral lipids further increases the need for vitamin E to protect against lipid peroxidation. Welcome, Dr. Inez Bustillos. Let's start by having you summarize your study and its findings. Thank you, Dr. Christensen, for having me in representation of our team. I want to start by commending your efforts, along with the leadership of Aspen and everyone behind this wonderful initiative to make this podcast happen. We appreciate the opportunity that you're giving us of sharing our findings with your international community. So as you pointed out, intravenous lipid emulsions are a key product that is given to patients that are dependent on parental nutrition. Particularly in children, we're mainly talking about patients with short bowel syndrome or other malabsorption disorders. It's given the research performed by Dr. Pewter and Dr. Gura, which are both co-investigators in in this particular project, fish oil-based lipid emulsions emerged nearly 15 years ago as an alternative to the standard soybean oil-based lipid available in the U.S., And it's actually been close to two years now since the FDA approved fish oil-based emulsions for use in patients that go on to develop intestinal failure-associated liver disease. So during this time, our group has focused not only in studying the efficacy and mechanism of action of such emulsions, but also has spent time looking at its safety and tolerability. And as for the mechanism of action, we've come to learn that the beneficial properties of fish oil lipid emulsions come from a combination of factors, one of the most important being the high content of omega-3 fatty acids. So high amounts of vitamin E are added to fish oil to prevent this polyunsaturated fatty acids from oxidizing and making the oil to basically turn rancid and useless. So over the past few years, some have raised the concern that such high amounts of vitamin E can pose a risk to children receiving these emulsions, which can lead to potential vitamin E toxicity. So what we did is we took advantage of our database of patients on such emulsions and sought to answer this question of whether or not we should be concerned about potential vitamin E toxicity in these children. So what we did is we retrospectively reviewed data for the past 10 years from patients receiving intravenous fish oil-based lipid emulsions for the treatment of intestinal failure-associated liver disease. 
at our institution, Boston Children's Hospital. It is worth noting that measurement of vitamin E levels is not done routinely and is not standard of care. So from 175 patients that we reviewed, almost half of them were excluded because they did not have vitamin E levels that were measured while they were on therapy. After this, what we found is that the incidence of vitamin E excess was close to 15% in our cohort. The median value amongst those with elevated levels of vitamin E was 29 milligrams per liter, which is just barely above the cutoff, 23. And the important thing is that since we're focusing not only on values and numbers, but the relevant question that we should answer is whether these findings translate in excess vitamin E that would be clinically relevant and lead to development of symptoms. And our communities and Aspen's community is certainly used to talking about vitamin deficiencies and their particular manifestations. And we don't usually talk or less of a common problem is that of hypervitaminosis or excess vitamins. So as for vitamin E, the, the main finding that has been associated with its toxicity is that of increased bleeding tendencies. And it's worth noting that from those patients that showed vitamin E excess in our cohort, there was no report of any life-threatening signs or symptoms that would suggest that there was vitamin E toxicity. Of note, a few years ago, we also looked at the risk of clinically significant post-procedural bleeding in our entire cohort, which included the 175 patients, almost uh, 700 procedures, and found no increased risk of bleeding compared to that of the general population, which was actually also presented at, at, at this conference. Dr. Inez, thank you for summarizing your study for us. Tell us about the different tocopherol isoform contents that are available in the various injectable lipid emulsions and their potential impact on patients receiving parenteral nutrition. So that's a great question. Vitamin E has many isoforms, which include alpha, beta, gamma, and delta tocopherol. Of these, alpha and delta are the ones that are abundant in the diet and tissues. So when we talk about intravenous lipid emulsions, we focus on the active form of vitamin E, which is alpha tocopherol. Currently available emulsions made with fish oil, which include, for example, Omegavan, and most recently, Smoth Lipid, they contain, contain concentrations of vitamin E that are approximately five to 10 times of those seen in the standard soybean oil-based lipid emulsion. Another important point to note is that soybean oil, in contrast to fish oil, contains a higher concentration of gamma tocopherol, which is less bioactive and needs to be methylated to the bioactive form of vitamin E, which is alpha tocopherol. So to finish answering your question, this can have a significant impact on patients as well, as vitamin E itself can have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties that, as you mentioned in your introduction, has proven beneficial in many disease processes, including inflammatory reaction from intestinal failure-associated liver disease. Good. Thanks for that summation on vitamin E and the different isoforms. Was there any association between the duration of omega N and serum vitamin E concentrations in your patients? And on a related question, for those patients who had multiple vitamin E levels done, was there any trend observed in the vitamin E concentrations? So looking at our data, again, we're limited by the number of data points that we have for each patient as measurement of vitamin E levels is not done routinely. 
but there does not seem to be an association between duration of therapy and vitamin E levels overall. In those instances, when patients had elevated levels, we saw some have it towards the early stages of therapy, others as time went on. So the cohort is, is so heterogeneous and there are so many variables in play that it would be difficult in this type of retrospective study to establish a true association. Relative to those other variables, uh, were these patients receiving standard pediatric vitamins in their parental nutrition? And did this have any impact on their vitamin E levels? So yeah, the standard of care for these patients in general is to receive pediatric vitamins, which is added to their parental nutrition. And uh, as this is relatively generalizable to our entire cohort, this, this should have not impacted the vitamin E levels. And then one last related question is, many of these patients are transitioning to oral nutrition, and I was just curious as to whether any of these patients were also receiving oral vitamin supplementation, and again, whether or not you saw any association with differences in vitamin E concentrations. Nutritional supplementation, other than that provided in PN, can definitely have an effect on the concentration of different vitamins. And as I mentioned before, Patients in this cohort have malabsorption issues that would generally preclude them from absorbing nutrients through the enteral route, including vitamins that are given orally. So we therefore do not think that this should have a significant impact on our findings. Thank you, Dr. Enyez, for joining us today. I want to congratulate you on your study and its findings. We also want to thank Fresenius Cabby for providing us the opportunity to discuss this research. As always, thank you to our audience for listening to this Aspen podcast. That's all for this episode. Please return to the Aspen channel of SoundCloud often to listen to our newest podcast. To support what we do, please share, subscribe, and leave a review over SoundCloud.